Okay, this is, <laughs> I, I have no idea if this is the right format. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Maybe there's some new words the teens are using, and I'm just an out-of-touch millennial. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, and sound bites we find all over the world. We listen to everything we can get our ears on, then play the best of what we hear for you each week. Today, a difficult discussion between two sisters and a rock star who gave it all up for the super sexy field of number theory. Stay with us. Family ties are like the lines of a highway. They only go in two directions, toward and away. And at any given point in our lives, we're travelers on one of those opposing routes, moving closer or needing distance. In this story, two sisters find themselves on a collision course as they debate a fundamental piece of their identity. Here's producer Simone Polanin. Last year, I got into a fight with my sister, and not one of our usual stop-borrowing-my-clothes fights. This is kind of making me want to scream, I gotta be honest. Do you, do you want me to leave? No, I just... What version of history have you been studying? It wasn't always that tense. When we were kids, my sister and I could quote the whole Shrek movie. Sometimes I was Donkey and she was Shrek, or she'd be Fiona and I would be Lord Farquaad. If we got bored during grown-up dinners, I'd hum the tune to Welcome to Duloc to get her to laugh. A lot of our childhood was like that. Inside jokes, secret games, a shared understanding. But at some point, I aged out of whatever she was watching. She was stuck on SpongeBob, and I had moved on to Desperate Housewives. And then, just as she was starting seventh grade, I left for college. She's a sophomore in college now. I don't get to see her much, usually only during the holidays. And even then, we don't really spend any one-on-one time together. I stopped knowing the ins and outs of her life, but I still felt like I knew the big stuff. I knew who she was as a person. And then, a couple Christmases ago, she told me something that made me think maybe I didn't know her after all. Twenty sixteen was the year my family broke our tradition of Christmas dinner at home. We went out to eat. And as we were finishing our meal, this guy, sitting at the table right behind us, turns to my dad. The guy's Asian. He says, you know, I have to ask because I've been wondering all night, but are you part Chinese? Okay, if you ask pretty much anyone to describe my dad, they'd say, that is a tall black man. Not much ambiguity there. But my dad's from Suriname. It's this small country in South America with people from Africa, India, Indonesia, and China. And my dad actually is an eighth Chinese. No one ever picks up on this. And we were all surprised that this guy did. We had a good laugh about it, chatted for a bit, and then headed home. On our drive back from the restaurant, we were comparing notes about what had just happened. We got philosophical about race and identity and culture, and I kind of casually mentioned that I identify as Black. And then my sister chimed in. I don't really identify as Black. 
immediately I was like, oh, this seems like a problem. But before I jumped all over her, I thought I should give her some space to explain herself. Maybe there's some new words the teens are using, and I'm just an out-of-touch millennial. So I asked her, okay, so how do you identify? And then my sister said, I identify as Dutch. And in my head, I thought, what is happening right now? But I should clarify about this Dutch point. This one isn't totally out of the blue. We lived in Amsterdam for five years as young children. We have dual citizenship, but we moved back to the U.S. right before her sixth birthday. She was basically a baby the whole time we were living abroad. She knows America so much better than she knows Holland. So I said, you identify as Dutch, but not black. When I said that, my sister slumped down in her seat. I glanced at my mom. She's Ethiopian. I was trying to give her a look that said something along the lines of, you immigrated all the way from East Africa to this great nation, and your own child is claiming she is European. Will you stand for this nonsense? But I don't think she got all that from my face. My mom said, just let her identify how she wants. So she's Dutch and not Black. What's the big deal? Then my mom gave me a look that said something along the lines of, drop it. This isn't your job. A few days later, I returned to New York, but that conversation stayed with me. I just didn't understand why she would identify as Dutch and why she wouldn't identify as Black. What sort of mental gymnastics was she doing to reach that conclusion? Sure, we're different people, but we were both raised by a mother who would constantly remind us of our heritage. Even though both of us were born in the U.S., it was always, your mother is Ethiopian, so you are also Ethiopian. So how could I be all young, gifted, and Black over here, and she's a whole-ass European over there? We're sisters. Some things about us are supposed to be the same. How could she not get that? It didn't sit right with me to know that my sister wouldn't call herself Black. I didn't know exactly what was going on, but I wanted to understand why she was saying this. So I could change her mind. So over the summer, I flew home to California to speak with her. A part of me was really dreading this conversation. I knew I was about to ask my sister some tough questions, and I probably wasn't going to like some of the answers. I generally try to avoid conflict at all costs, but if I can't, I really lean into it. Okay, I just need to take your level. So can you tell me what you did this morning? Okay, so this morning I woke up and... Can you talk naturally, please? You also don't have to lean towards the microphone. Yeah, so this morning I went to go chicken sit and I refreshed their water. As we were talking, I was looking around my sister's room. It had changed a lot. When we were kids, she insisted on painting one of her walls bright orange. It was so ugly. But while we were talking, I noticed she had painted it white again. She was 12 the last time I was in here. She's 19 now. And I really hadn't been keeping track of how her room had changed. <sighs> okay, enough stalling. I asked her if she remembered that conversation in the car on Christmas. Uh, yeah. I said that I had more of a connection to culture rather than race. So I didn't really see myself as African-American because I had grown up 
in Europe, so I didn't really agree with the African-American culture. Do you consider yourself black? Mm. I mean, I don't really think about race. I guess I do have black skin, so I guess I do consider myself black. But again, I do have some more connection with the Dutch culture than I would say American culture. I try to remind myself, you're not here to lecture her, you're here to listen. But at the same time, I was thinking, you don't think about race? And when are you going to stop talking so I can tell you you're wrong? Well, funny thing is, it feels in my heart that I've actually been born in the Netherlands because that's just how much of a strong connection I've had to it. Um, okay. But factually, you are not. That is true. So I'm having a hard time understanding how you can feel like you were born somewhere. Well, what what's your question for me in this context? Well, I'm just trying to understand how you feel like you were born in Holland, but in fact, you are born in the United States. I'm just... I'm trying to understand the logic behind feeling like you were born elsewhere. So I associate birthplace with wherever you feel more comfortable. And in a cultural sense... We talked like this back and forth. I would ask her a question. How do you feel about your skin color? She would give a convoluted and indirect answer. I don't really consider myself completely one I would ask her the, the same time. question 20 different ways thinking maybe I'm not asking her the right question okay, please feel free to be straight with me she would find 20 different ways to answer me like I I don't know where I'm going with this and I still wasn't getting any clarity on what was going on inside her head and about two hours into the conversation I hit a breaking point this is kind of making me want to scream I gotta be honest do you, do you... Do you want me to leave or do you want no. me to the interview? No, I just, I feel like you're not engaging with what I'm saying. I feel like you're saying a thing and I'm pushing back and then you're like, okay, let me change my opinion. But I'm not asking you to change your opinion. I'm asking you to explain your opinion. Okay, well, I feel like there's this culture that um, if someone has a limited view on something, instead of other people trying to patiently let them know that what they're thinking is like, I know that these thoughts are incorrect and I want to learn. No, they're not incorrect. I'm just saying we have such different opinions and that's okay, but I'm frustrated because I feel like you're letting me bully you into saying whatever you think I want you to say. And that's not what I want. Okay, well, did you say you identify as black because you think I want you to identify as black? Yes, that's true. Can you just tell me how what you think? No, I don't identify as any color, really. I don't identify as a race. I don't believe that race has a significant impact on my life. I do not wake up in the morning and think, I am black, I am this. Because we live in a society that asks you about your race all the time, I'm, that's the answer I'm going to give you. 
but in actuality, I do not identify myself with race at all. This version of the world my sister was living in, where race didn't factor into her life, it felt naive. And as we kept talking, I could see her ideas were shifting. This was less about being Dutch and more about not being Black. There is this certain image that some people have of us in America. I think I've definitely internalized some racism. So I really need to figure out a way to get rid of this because I don't want to be ashamed of myself in, in any way. The way that I was interpreting it, which is the one that I'm actually more fearful of, is that it was coming from a place of shame or a place of self-hatred. And that's concerning to me because it's that is a feeling that I identify with and it's a feeling that I've experienced. And it's a very painful feeling. And I don't want my sister to experience that. It's difficult. So that's why that's why I think I was so upset because it it felt familiar to me and it scared me to think that you were going through that. I wasn't expecting to push my sister into an identity crisis. A few hours ago, she was insisting that race didn't even cross her mind. Now I heard hesitation and uncertainty in her voice. I felt like I had just busted her worldview wide open, and she wasn't ready to handle that. I mean, thank God no one asked me for my hot takes on race when I was 19. I can barely deal with reading my Facebook posts from back then. I was starting to feel like, man, maybe this conversation wasn't the best idea. I wanted to talk to someone who could help me clean up this mess I had just made. My mom's the one who gives me all the updates on my sister's life anyways. I figured maybe she could help me. I asked her about that conversation over Christmas. It didn't surprise her. In fact, she'd heard my sister struggle with her identity since she was six years old. She came one day, she said, I don't want to be this color. Oh, it... it uh scared me and and I but I didn't show her that I was you know whoa how am I going to handle this and I said wait a minute are you telling me you don't like my color no 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 for you it's your beautiful mom for you it's okay for me I want to be white like my friends I don't know what made her say that she was a very um articulate girl for her, even for her age. But that time she couldn't. It was too big. It was too murky. It was too much what she was feeling. It hurt to hear my mom say that. It wasn't like I hadn't gone through that myself. When I was five years old, I would cry to my mom that I didn't have straight blonde hair like Cinderella. But I got over that by the time I was my sister's age. I wondered why she hadn't. But still, why would my mom, who told me I was Ethiopian, like her, above all things, also come to my sister's defense when she called herself Dutch? I don't care what 
she identified with as long as it's true to the, your insight that is so personal to find yourself in this very murky, complicated way of identifying yourself. And for her, if that's what she needs right now, let her. Let her identify herself with the, the Dutch culture. I flew back to New York and started going through the recordings from that weekend. The whole point of this was to understand my sister, but I walked out of our conversation even more confused. And my sister, she was overwhelmed. I was rough with her. I could hear that in the tape. I was thinking of turning these recordings into a story, but really I wanted a second shot at our conversation. Maybe I just needed to give her some space to get her thoughts together. So I shot her a text. Just so you know, I want to have a follow-up conversation with you, and I'll record this one too. She responded that she didn't want to, and she wasn't so sure about that first conversation either. I read the text from my sister over and over again. I just didn't feel comfortable the first time you interviewed me, and I don't want to continue that with a second round. When I read that, I thought, oh, God, I ruined her. I bullied her into doing this thing she never wanted to do in the first place. I put her in an uncomfortable position just so I could get a good story out of it. And then a few days later, I thought, wow, this is what she's doing, huh? She's really going to drop out. She's really going to sabotage my story like this. But the one thought that stayed constant was, I've been a bad sister. I tried to get on the phone with her, but between her classes and exams and rehearsals, we just never found the time. Eventually, Christmas was rolling around again. We were both going home for the holidays. I packed my recorder, just in case. I didn't see much of her the first few days I was home. And then one night, I snuck upstairs to my sister's room to check on her. She was in bed on her phone. I hovered around the doorway. I wanted to make her feel safe and to see if she could warm up to the idea of another interview. First, we talked without a microphone. She explained to me why she felt so uncomfortable, that she was worried people would misinterpret what she was trying to say. I apologized for getting so testy with her. I reassured her the last thing I'd want to do is to make her look bad. I told her... How about I grab my mic, and we can talk about what's been on your mind. If you want to stop at any point, we can stop. I want you to lean over into the mic. I'll put the mic close to you. You don't have to put the... But whatever whatever feels comfortable for you. Okay, this is good. We sat down to talk, first about how to keep this conversation from going off the rails. I felt like the answers I was giving you, they weren't really reflective of what I was thinking, but like... If the questions were a little bit more free form, then I think I would be, I would have been able to give you answers of what my true opinions were. So I asked her, what do you want to say that you didn't get to say the first time around? We talked about how 
I'm ashamed of being black. I'm ashamed of my racial identity. But I don't think that was the case. I didn't realize that the skin that I grew up in, it would have to be such a big, such a big part of my identity beyond, like what I first thought about like race was just like, okay, I'm black, but I don't understand why this has to be such a big part of how I define myself as a person. As she was talking, I kept wanting to interrupt, to chime in with my opinion or something I disagreed with, or to tell her to just sit up straight and stop leaning into the mic. But my job was to listen. And maybe then I could start to understand how my sister sees herself. I feel like in a perfect world, people would identify with whatever they personally do that makes them happiest. I mean... I would really describe my identity with my personality traits and what I like to do. Like, I am a trustworthy friend. I am kind and warm and accepting. I have a pretty great sense of humor. I was surprised to hear how confidently she spoke about herself and really impressed by how easily she was able to recognize her own strengths. I really admired her positivity And I really didn't want to be the one to bring her back down to earth. But who else would tell her how the world really works? I'd love to be seen as a creative, generous friend with impeccable taste in television. But people will look at me and see a Black person. And they'll make all sorts of assumptions because of that. Race is going to play a role in my life. The way I've made peace with that is by embracing it. I wanted her to get there too. And then I realized, in this moment, she wasn't looking for my advice. She just wanted me to listen. We kind of stumbled through a not entirely coherent conversation about identity. It was a little abstract and convoluted, but it was nice to talk. And it turns out her thoughts and feelings about her identity have changed quite a bit since we talked six months ago. I find that I'm starting to identify more with my Ethiopian and Surinamese background, and it connects with being African-American my African-American identity, to me, it's pretty global. So when did you, because last time we talked, you were like not even calling yourself African-American. So when did you start to claim that as a part of how you describe yourself? Mm -hmm. So it started happening recently. I've been inching towards it this school term. Like, we had this Nigerian-American film artist who came to school to show her work and talk about how she had to put her identity into her work. That helped. As she's telling me about what she's up to in school, what she and her friends are talking about, I understand something. Something that I knew, but I didn't really get until now. My sister's doing the thing that college students do. She's learning new things, exposing herself to different people. She's growing up and changing and figuring it out. She's exploring what it means to be her. And I've been trying to rush her through the steps of her self-discovery. I've been acting more like a parent than a sister, trying to protect her from making her own mistakes. And I've been missing out on getting to know each beautiful version of her. I've been writing this and a lot of people have been asking me to add more detail about you and I've really struggled because I actually realized that I don't really know 
what you get up to generally, because in my mind, I think of you watching like SpongeBob and Adventure Time and and I have no idea what your like contemporary interests or likes are. Mm. Yeah, well, I've definitely like stopped watching those like a while back. But um I mean, free time wise, I've been getting into painting and the shows that I watch, I'm still into comedies. I've been getting into Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I love that show. <laughs> yes. Oh <my> God. Okay. <laughs> have you watched, wait, have you watched, there are two seasons on Netflix, right? Mm-hmm. Have you Have you watched the others? Has there been another season? So we didn't have an intellectual breakthrough into the fabric of Black identity in America. I can live with that. I did leave the conversation feeling like I understood where my sister was coming from. And more importantly, that what she's thinking about is constantly evolving. What she thought last Christmas is different from what she thought over the summer, which is different still from what she was thinking about just last month. I certainly didn't have my identity figured out at her age. It took a lot of years of convincing myself that I was born with worth, despite being told otherwise, to get to where I am now. But maybe I can be there for her as she's finding her own place. I don't think I knew how to be different from her and still be her sister. I was scared that if we were too different, I was going to lose her. I'm starting to let go of that. We're still a ways away from being on Shrek quoting terms, but the next time I'm watching Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, I'll probably shoot my sister a, hey, guess what I'm doing text, and then like a goofy selfie of me in front of the TV and we can take it from there. That was Sister Sister, produced by Simone Polanin for The Nod from Gimlet Media. Brave conversations are hard to have, no matter who they're with, a sibling, a friend, or even just with yourself. In fact, I would venture to say that talking to yourself honestly may be the most difficult conversation of all. In this next piece, we get to listen in on the musings of writer and radio producer Starly Kine, who is about to confess the 10 things that scare her. But Starly isn't big on rules, as in, why stop at 10? Okay, this is, <laughs> I, I have no idea if this is the right format, but yeah. Okay. One, never making any of my own work again. Two, never getting paid for my work again. Three, never getting paid again. Four, never having another crush. Five, never being the object of another crush. Six, The fear that even my using the word crush is out of touch, juvenile, the crux of the whole problem. Seven, dancing. Eight, singing. Nine, the man I once saw on the subway eating a full tub of cream cheese. Like, just out of the tub. I'm losing track of these numbers. Um, Aging, being asked my opinion of a friend's work I didn't like. Out of the three truly terrifying images in the film Hereditary, Tony Collette floating in the attic scared me the most. 
never being as scared of any movie as I was when I was a kid, breakup dreams, my exes being happier without me, my exes never thinking about me, loss of meaning, loss of purpose, loss of curiosity, my voice becoming gravelly, walking up the stairs outside my apartment one day and realizing I can't make the full climb, walking my dog up the stairs outside my apartment one day and realizing my dog can't make the full climb, my own anger, loneliness, my friends all coupling up and having kids, and I, out of fear of being left behind combined with the envy I feel, starting to look for things to critique them about, judge them for, until I am nothing but a critical judging shell of a person who they have every right to not text back or invite to things, thus fulfilling the prophecy that I myself set in motion. The Apple Store, expensive pillows, hipster stores in the airport, wanting something I can't have, the death of cities, greed, the internet, having kids, not having kids, everything related to the environment, power, powerlessness, mob mentality, capitalism, quality, beauty, uniqueness, being things only for the rich, class war among the old, the fate of everyone who isn't rich. There's an Apple store that was put in in Williamsburg, and I feel like that really was the thing that changed it all. Like, everything followed the Apple store. And I've never seen an Apple store that's not in a mall that you can just, like, look through the windows while it's asleep, you know? So at night, you can see the iPhones charging, right? And it looks like an army of dicks. That was writer and radio producer Starley Kine from the podcast 10 Things That Scare Me from WNYC Studios. High-level math is a language few of us understand. And the people that do, well, they aren't exactly household names, let alone rock stars. But in our next story, the marriage between music and math goes way beyond consonance and dissonance. In fact, it goes all the way to infinity. Here's Joel Werner with The Infinite God. Robert Schneider was the last person that Ken Ono expected to hear from. Oh my gosh. I had known about Robert Schneider through his music. Ken's a mathematician and a professor of number theory at Emory University. Five years ago, I got an email from this Robert Schneider saying that he wanted to pursue a PhD in number theory, which for me is crazy. Hey, I'm Joel Werner. Robert is a rock star. He's a lead singer of the band Apples and Stereo. You know, we don't usually look for graduate students from a pool of rock stars. This is some of all parts. I thought it was the craziest thing that this man in his early 40s wants to put that career on hold and pursue a career in mathematics. And today, it's the infinite God. So this all starts when a crate turns up at Robert's recording studio. It's like the kind of crate you see in old cartoons where there'll be like a kangaroo that's being shipped across the sea, but the kangaroo breaks out of the crate and like wreaks havoc. <laughs> Lo and behold, before me stood a king-sized mouse. Maybe the kangaroo like gets confused for a mouse or something like that. It's, you know, and it was an old school wood crate. We had to use a crowbar to open it. the size of that mouth. You know, it was very romantic. And when we opened it and the box fell aside, 
there is the most beautiful antique tape machine. We put it in place, and the first time I used it, I realized that this was the perfection of the tape machine recording technology, probably of all time. As good as the tape machine sounded, it had a problem. It would constantly blow out these things called diodes, an electronic component. And this was like the Achilles heel of this particular tape machine. For every one day that the tape machine worked, it would be broken down for two days. To start with, the band got a local audio engineer to come in and repair the machine. But then... Two days later, he had to come back. He fixed it again. He's like, look, I think this is just going to keep happening. Uh, You know, Robert, you're going to have to learn to fix this yourself. And so in the haze of just being sort of a lo-fi, punk rock, hippie recording artist, I suddenly had to learn about electronics. And so I went to Radio Shack and I bought this book called Basic Electronics and I opened the book up and on the first page I opened to, right in the middle of the page, there was this equation called Ohm's Law. And Ohm's Law is the fundamental law of electronics. Basically, it's an equation that describes in numbers how electricity flows. And it's so simple, it just has three things in it with an equal sign. And when I saw this law on the page, it completely blew my mind because I realized in that moment that everything that I thought was important, everything I had tried to do that was beautiful, all of my friendships, my band, my friends that I had traded music listen with, to music listening with, to the radio, listening to records and tapes, recording onto the tape machine, the microphone, flickering lights, the red lights flashing. All of this stuff was existing against the backdrop of this simple mathematical equation. And it's not just that. My brain was an electrical system. My thoughts and my mind somehow were being supported by this equation. And like I'm in my studio and I'm at the microphone, like we are right now. And you speak into the microphone and your voice is transformed into electricity and it goes through all of these circuits and stuff and comes back through the system into my headphones and it's going back into my ears and there it's transformed back into electrical impulses and it goes back into my mind. It's this crazy loop of electricity that our entire existence is completely wrapped up in and all of this stuff was contained in a simple equation that was just algebra on a page. My memory of that moment is that there was like light shining down through the ceiling onto me, like golden light, like in those Renaissance paintings. <laughs> like, it really felt like that. It felt like there was no ceiling or sky above me, just like infinity, like pouring down this light on me onto the page. It was a very dramatic feeling. After I had this sort of epiphany with the tape machine, I was extremely enamored of mathematics instantly. So Robert starts to teach himself mathematics. And the whole time this was happening, I'm in a touring band, I'm making records, and I'm in studios all of the time, and also I'm a dad. So in sort of the frenzy of life, I also was trying to sneak time whenever I could to learn about mathematics and work on these ideas. Robert would be backstage, head deep in a textbook, or on a break in a studio, scribbling away in one of his notebooks. But being a muso with a maths obsession is kind of a solitary pursuit. No matter how many degrees of separation you went away from me, I didn't even know one other person that was interested in math. Maybe like if you had a day job, but then your hobby was that you were a solitary lumberjack and you'd like drive out into the wilderness miles and miles and miles away from any other human being and would chop down trees. <laughs> you know, being like a self-taught mathematician not knowing anybody, it kind of feels like it's that isolated, like you really are doing this thing that it doesn't connect to anybody else. Like a crossfade, the volume was slowly turning down on Robert's music career and mixing with this new noise, number theory. 
Mathematics started to infiltrate the music that Robert was making. Like, he used natural logarithms to develop this thing called a non-Pythagorean scale. You're hearing a piece composed in this scale now. Essentially, it's a brand new musical scale with new notes set at intervals that aren't found in the chromatic scale we all know and love. This intrigued the mathematics community and Robert was invited to give lectures on music and maths at universities and colleges across the US. And it was on one of these trips that he met Ken Ono for the first time. I am a professional, real, live research mathematician, which means that I spend a lot of time thinking about numbers. Deep in the wilderness, Robert ran into another lumberjack. Ken's really enthusiastic. He's very high energy. He's kind of far out. He's a fast thinker. I can remember leaving and feeling like I was flying on math. Like, (laughs) it was the first time I had engaged in such a deep math conversation with anybody, and he ended up having me in his office for like an hour and a half, and it was a really, really wonderful experience for me. So Ken and Robert hit it off for a whole bunch of reasons, but a big part of it is their shared obsession with a mystical Indian mathematician who's been dead for almost a century, Ramanujan. Much of my work, believe it or not, is informed by a man named Ramanujan. He is quite an amazing figure, really. He is kind of like an incomplete prophet. In the world of math... Once you hear about some mathematicians, Ramanujan's name is, it comes up. If you don't know anything about mathematics, well, you know about Isaac Newton. Everybody knows who he is, you know, and maybe like Einstein. If you go one layer in, so you like say have heard about people like Euler and Gauss, then you also know about Ramanujan. So like he's very famous in mathematics, but it's like being famous in indie music. Like (laughs) if you've never heard of pavement, there's no way you'll ever hear of them. (laughs) But but they're one level in. So like if you know what indie music is, then you know who pavement is. Is it similar similar in that like if you do know about pavement, then like you really know about pavement. Do you know what I mean? Like you don't have a casual pavement fan, right? Like you you have a pavement fan. If you've gotten that far in, then you're too far in. (laughs) Born into poverty in the south of India in 1887, Ramanujan had almost no formal training in mathematics. And yet still, over the course of his lifetime, he came up with thousands of mathematical formulas because he thought that they were gifts to him from his Hindu goddess, a goddess Namagiri. At night, in his sleeping dreams, or when he was meditating in his temple, his family's goddess would come to him in visions and would touch his tongue with her finger and write equations on his tongue. Just how Ramanujan came up with these formulas is one of the biggest mysteries in mathematics. Beyond the folklore of a goddess writing on his tongue, he left behind no trace of how he actually derived any of his work. Like I said, Ramanujan was born into a poor family and paper was expensive, so he did all his calculations in chalk on a slate, wiping the slate clean as he went. It was only when he got to the final formula that he'd transcribe it from the slate into a notebook. He presented his work without any proofs. It was just a list of equations. Nobody could make heads or tails of it in his era. And for the last hundred years, mathematicians have been trying to work out what Ramanujan did and to prove his work. Ramanujan's work is all about unlocking the infinite, about taking what most of us think of as inconceivable and making it more knowable. He found ways of taming extremely complicated numbers so that you would never be afraid of them at all. As I looked into Ramanujan, I found that his story really spoke to me. He was a self-taught mathematician 
He didn't have access to education. He had, in fact, dropped out of college. This inspired me to realize that you could take this sort of self-motivated, non-standard path towards mathematics. That's more commonly the way that artists go about it. I saw him as being the model for the kind of genius that one might aspire to, you know? Ramanujan was the mathematician that provided me with the model of how I saw that mathematics should be done. Flash forward a couple of years, and I had decided that I was going to drop out of the music scene, stop touring, and go to graduate school. And if I'm going to do that, I should probably do it now. I'm like 40. <laughs> and so like uh, over the course of a year or so, pulled myself out of the music world. This is huge. Robert's a rock star. Music is his entire life. That was sort of a weird, or, you know, it was a great time, but it's a weird time too. I almost had like an identity, sort of a... Um, a dissociative fugue a little bit where you have like people like leave town and change their names and move <laughs> to a different place and take on a whole new identity. I didn't have that going on, but I felt a little bit like that was going on because there was no crossover between my music life and my math life. And it's pretty obvious who Robert's going to want to oversee this crossover, right? He visited me at Emory University and he came armed with notebooks. I couldn't believe it. Just like Ramanujan had notebooks, he must have a hundred of them by now. Ken was grilling me to see if I was acceptable as a student for him. And the world it wasn't just me coming in as a well-known musician with a math hobby. It was like me coming in as a potential person he would work with. And it had a different flavor to it. The level of energy in the room. Who needs nuclear power if you have someone like Robert Schneider? He said, I don't know a lot of math, but I love beauty and I see that there is art in mathematics and I want to come study with you at Emory. We went through his notebooks, I saw flashes of genius, and we took a gamble on him because a lot of the qualities that I see in Ramanujan, I see in Robert. Robert's completely unconventional in his thoughts. And, you know, he has produced some of the most beautiful formulas that I've seen in the last four or five years. When I left that time, it was more than flying on math. I mean, I was in, like, orbit, you know? Like, <laughs> it was such a great feeling. It was a very inspiring and exciting moment for me. As I left the building, my wife picked me up, and the way she tells the story is that I got in the car, and she looked at me, and she said I had never looked so happy. And she said to me, honey, you're going to Emory, aren't you? And I thought about it for a second, and I was like, oh, my God, she's right. I have never felt this happy in this kind of conversation about mathematics with anybody. So Robert packs up his house and his family and he moves across the country to start a PhD with Ken Ono. And soon after this, Ken has a breakthrough, a huge result. And it's to do with Ramanujan's most mysterious work, a mystery he left to the world from his deathbed. But to understand it, we need to put it in the context of the end of Ramanujan's life. So Ramanujan's been collecting these formulas gifted to him in his sleep by a goddess writing on his tongue, and after a while, he starts sending his work to prominent mathematicians all around the world. Now, he doesn't show any working, right? So there's no way to figure out how he derived any of his ideas. So these academics, they pretty much just ignore him. Except for G.H. Hardy, a number theorist at Cambridge University. G.H. Hardy was this amazing super mathematician of his era. Ramanujan had sent him a letter filled with mathematics. Hardy was like, I've never seen anything like this. It's so crazy that it has to be true. Hardy was running on a gut feeling, and he invited Ramanujan to come to England to study with him at Cambridge. 
And for a period of five years, in the mid-19-teens, when England was in the midst of this bloody world war, Ramanujan proved some of the most astonishing formulas of the day. During his time at Cambridge, Ramanujan struggled to adapt to English culture. In particular, he found the food strange and difficult to stomach. He was frequently sick, but doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. And eventually, the constant illness got too much. So he returned to India in 1919, hoping to return to good health. But he continued to do his own research. And in January of 1920, he wrote to his collaborator, G.H. Hardy, in Cambridge. And this letter begins, Dear Hardy, I'm sorry for not writing a single letter, but I've discovered this most wonderful theory. And he goes on to list examples of functions he calls mock theta functions. And for the next 90 years, nobody knew what he was talking about. And this was very mysterious. He sent it in a letter just a few pages long, so he didn't put any more information about it, but he indicated in the letter that he had a theory. And then the next letter that Hardy got said that Ramanujan had passed away. Ramanujan died, unfortunately, at the age of 32, long before he was able to explain all of his ideas to Hardy and the other mathematicians. And so all that was left was the single letter that had a couple of examples. Nobody had any idea how Ramanujan had come up with them, and so these bizarre functions that Ramanujan dreamed up in a fever, one imagines, on his deathbed, turned out to be a huge subject of study and intrigue in the 20th century. And this was Ken's big breakthrough. He figured out how Ramanujan derived these deathbed functions. It was as if he'd been able to undo some of the chalk workings that Ramanujan had wiped clean from his slate. One day I walked into Ken's office and he was like, Robert, I know how to prove that Ramanujan's definition of the Mach theta functions is true. I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. That's really big news. Well, it turns out that that year, 2012, was the 125th anniversary of Ramanujan's birth. There was a big festival going on all over India about Ramanujan. He's a national hero there. So we were invited by Shastra University, a modern university that is based in Kumbakonam in South India, the town that Ramanujan lived in and grew up in. Ken was invited to speak about his new work, and they invited me also to give a talk on quantum modular forms. So Ken and Robert head to India. I've been to India many times, but it was thrilling to share this pilgrimage with Robert visiting some of the sites that play an important role in the Ramanujan story when he was visiting them for the first time. I had a considerable amount of work to do, which was hard because I was on anti-malaria medication that was making me kind of be in a psychedelic state the whole time I was there. So, like, I, you know, I, was, I was there, the Ramanujan, the Kumbakonam, the, the, the Hinduism, this whole thing was all swimming around. I was having an extremely surreal experience. Imagine him walking through ruins and temples in India, soaking up the brilliant colors, the smells, and the people. This is Kumbakonam. It's a town of, say, 100,000 people, maybe a few hundred thousand people, but it still feels like a village. It feels like you're in this beautiful tropical jungle. It is a sacred city in South India filled with temples. It's called the Temple City. The temple that is just down the street from Ramanujan's childhood home. It's about like a block away from his house. It's this beautiful, brilliantly painted structure built from rocks that were brought from the north by elephants like 2,000 years ago that reach, I don't know, five, 600 feet into the sky. These giant stones are now blackened with age. 
engraved with crazy ancient alphabets that people don't even recognize anymore. And as you peer at the top of this temple, you can barely make out the intricate carvings in the very, very top segment of it. And there'll be 80 or 100 bats flying around, swirling around the top. And all the while, you hear the rhythmic drumming of the drums that the Hindu monks are chanting to from the inside. And suddenly, the sound has dropped away. There are so many thick walls of stone between you and the modern world, and you're walking into a space that's thousands of years old just to walk from your modern life into an ageless space like that feels extremely mysterious and deep. Ramanujan experienced this every day. As I went into his temple, I looked around at all of the patterns and designs, and I felt like I was really inside a culture of infinity. Indian religion is not a religion of one god or a handful of gods like the ancient Greek mythology or something. It's a religion of almost infinitely many shapes and forms of their deity. This sense of blossoming, flowering things, popping off infinitely, like fractals, fractals, branching off. This is built into the art and architecture of Hinduism. And if you look at ornate art and tapestries, and carvings, carvings, paintings, you see all of these details. As you zoom in, you see all of these little details. Everywhere you look, it's covered, it's covered with, with art. plants and Everywhere foliage. you look, it's bustling with animals and trees and, and flowers. And everything like looks like sort of a simple pattern. And as you zoom in, you keep seeing the same pattern repeating, but with more variety. And as you zoom in, and you zoom in, and you zoom in, and you zoom in, and then you on the level of the infinity, the infinitude of fractal-like details all around in Indian culture, I believe that that gave Ramanujan a sense of comfort with infinite detail. So I think that the infinite variety of deities and patterns in the art and everything else must have calibrated his mind to be able to somehow feel absolutely at ease with the clutter and the chaos of the crazy mathematics that he started to think about. These were things that Western mathematicians had never even thought about before. They were still struggling with simple aspects of. Ramanujan rushed ahead and pulled in thousands of new crazy patterns that nobody had even looked for before because they were so blinded by the noise. And he was able to look through the noise, being perfectly comfortable with it. It's kind of like in the 90s, we had that magic eye art, and you see this like crazy complicated pattern, but if you stare inside it, suddenly it's a whale floating in a, with a heart <laughs> or something, you know what I mean? I think he would see that. I feel like Ramanujan was looking into the noise that he saw in mathematics, and he was able to look into it and blur his eyes and see into the distance and see the 3D whale that was floating. <laughs> At a certain level, or maybe just with a certain mindset, mathematics becomes something different to what you study in school. Fewer rote timetables and hazily memorised formulas and something more creative, closer to an artistic pursuit, something interwoven with all of your life's other passions, all of which inform the way you think about numbers. And that's it really, you can't escape the influence your life has on what you choose to do with it. Context is everything, so you might as well make the most of it.
mathematics is like music. It is a self-contained universe of its own. When I'm writing songs, when I'm making music, most of the time I'm actually not making any sound at all. I'm just thinking. I'm listening in my head to arrangements develop and to songs that I'm writing, and I'm thinking of lyrics maybe that I'm writing down in my notebook. But it's largely a silent and internal process. When I'm in the studio, I'll hear that world that I had sort of imagined coming out of the speakers, and it connects in a really magical way because it's overlapping with the world that's already inside my head. You're suddenly physically able to reach into the world that was previously only mental. Mathematics is pure. It's free from the physical world. There's no constraint. The mathematics is like hearing the music in your head. It's a fully self-contained universe that you have access to in your imagination, and we only know a tiny little piece of it. Think about the set of all possible sounds that could ever be made anywhere by anything, and then think about how small music theory is compared to that. And that's what the math that we practice is like compared to the math that's out there. It feels like there's a universe of all possible mathematics, and we know this tiny little piece that we've been able to find. And that's something you see. You look off into the distance in your imagination, and you can see that that's there. You can see off in the distance, fading away, these like horizons that are beyond what you could possibly know or reach. That was The Infinite God by Joel Werner for the sum of all parts from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's Radio National. Look out for season two of the podcast, which will be launching very soon. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Isabel Vasquez and curated by Johanna Zorn and Maya Goldberg-Safer. Juan Pablo Ramirez-Franco is our production intern. The Third Coast team also includes Emily Kennedy and Rebecca Silverman. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 2,000 outstanding documentaries from around the world. And subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. Want to stay up to date on the latest Third Coast happenings? Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or subscribe to our newsletter at thirdcoastfestival.org. With so much to listen to and so little time, ReSound. All diamonds, no rough. <laughs>